Thank you very much, uh, Jim, for those kind words. Uh, I am quite sure that everyone present must be a Catholic because no self-respecting Protestant would get up at this time of the morning to go to an AA meeting. Son, it's ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Well, you should all be on the golf course or someplace else. I, um, whenever I do this kind of thing, and I do it fairly frequently, I get very nervous, and I've, uh, everything was going along fine. Uh, Jim called me on the phone some months ago and asked me if I would be speak at Founders Day, and of course I was very delighted. I said yes, and furthermore, I'd do anything to get Jim off the phone, <laughs> so I hung up. And um, then uh, about a week ago, I looked at my book, and I realized I'm in Akron, Ohio next weekend, and I started to worry. And a few days ago, I looked at my book again and realized I'm in Akron, Ohio on Sunday morning, and I began to get nervous. Now, when you're nervous and worried, that's a bad combination. And uh, right now, I'm wishing to God I had said no. <laughs> you know? But uh, it reminded me of an experience I had many years ago when I was invited to speak to uh, the inmates of one of our major penal institutions in Canada, namely the Kingston Penitentiary. Now, I had never been in penitentiary. I should have been, but I hadn't made it. And uh, I uh, accepted the invitation. I went there on the appointed day, and the, uh, the warden asked me to have lunch with him, and I enjoyed the lunch. And when he said, now it's time to go to the assembly hall. And we proceeded on to the assembly hall, and I was more and more and more nervous by the minute. And finally, we got into the assembly hall, and I was petrified now because in front of me were several hundred prisoners in their gray uniforms, their numbers in a very menacing-looking sight indeed. And there was very, because they kept locking doors all the time, there was very little I could do about it because they'd locked the door. I couldn't get out. And it was one of the lengthiest preambles to a meeting I've ever been through in my entire life. Everybody had something to say. They went out in the hall, got the janitor, he came in and talked for 20 minutes. And finally got around to introducing me as the speaker, and I stepped to the front of the platform, and I had a dreadful experience, one that a speaker hopes he would never have in a lifetime. My mind went blank. I couldn't think of a single thing to say. And what seemed like an eternity, and which was only a matter of a few seconds, I'm sure, I'm saying to myself inside, Waters, you've got to get this thing underway. And I hope that I'll never forget that my opening remarks to them was, I was glad to see so many of them there, you know. They've never invited me back. I can't understand. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Peter Waters, and I'm a member of the Oakville Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the order of importance as far as I'm concerned, because for many years, it was very important who I was and not what I was. It is only by the grace of God and the example that I found in this fellowship that I've been able to find a way of life that enables me to live one day at a time without the use of alcohol, as befits a human being and as God intended that I should live. My story as an alcoholic is not greatly different than most stories you will have heard. It has a certain amount of fear and remorse and degradation, as we have all experienced it. It differs perhaps in a couple of respects. One is that I was a religious alcoholic, and the other is I was a political alcoholic. And I've always maintained when you put those two together, you end up with a hell of an alcoholic. And I want to preface any remarks I have to make today by referring you to a slogan that we're familiar with in AA, and that slogan is to keep an open mind. Now, that's a very, very important slogan. And it's going to be very important to you before I'm finished with you, too, because I'm going to say some things that are very disturbing. As a matter of fact, I hope I say things that will get you so enraged that you'll go to this meeting and you'll go home and find the big book, <laughs> wherever you put it, you know. As anything I'm going to share with you today is going to come directly from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I asked, I exhort you to keep an open mind. Now, I've discovered over the years there's a great deal of difference between an open mind and a vacant mind, so please keep an open mind. Now, I know I started off by saying I was a recovered alcoholic, and some people get all uptight when I say that, and they say, Oh, Waters, you just say that to be controversial. My friends, I don't have to say anything in Alcoholics Anonymous to be controversial. Just show up, you know. <laughs> or sometimes not show up, and they'll talk about it for bloody weeks, you know. I take as my authority for the statement that I made that I'm a recovered alcoholic, a quotation from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we have a large crowd here this morning, and I want all of you to know this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, my friends. And I have discovered over the years that if you want to hide something from somebody in AA, you put it in the big book. They'll never bloody find it, I'll tell you. I take as my authority a quotation from the foreword was written by Wilson in 1939, and I quote, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered. That's what it says right there. From a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Now, when you use language as direct and as positive as those statements are, my friends, it doesn't leave uh, too much room for frigging around. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Oh, oh not frigging around. No, no, I'll come back. I'll come back another time and do that. <laughs> See, I haven't always been a priest. <laughs> I have a distinct advantage over everyone here this morning. I have been on both sides of the confessional. <laughs> And I haven't heard anything I haven't done either, I want to know. I was born 66 years ago into an Irish Catholic family. One might say, well, what's that got to do with being an alcoholic? Well, perhaps it's not a qualification, but let me assure you, it's not an impediment either, because if you're familiar with the heritage of the Irish, you know there's a very, very severe tradition. And uh, I, I was one of seven in a large Irish Catholic family, and it wasn't an unusual thing that one of the boys in a large Irish Catholic family would go to the church. And I, I was the one that was earmarked, and I had no difficulty with that because I loved the church very much. But you see, we had a problem. Oh, God, we had a problem. We were poor. As a matter of fact, we were dirt poor. Now, there's nothing wrong with being poor. It's just inconvenient, <laughs> that's all. And uh, you either had to have rich relatives or money, and I had neither one. And so the alternative was to go out in the world and earn some money and uh, go back to school later. And I did just that. I left school at a very early age went out into the working world with the idea that I'd make some money and return to school later. Well, I, I knew there was one profession in the working world that I could do without a degree, an academic degree, and I could do it well, and I could make a lot of money doing it, and that was selling. Because the only requirement for a good salesman is a lot of the Blarney, and I had certainly lots of that. So fellow said to me the other day, he said, Waters, you didn't kiss the Blarney Stone, you invented it, you know. And so I went out into the working world, and I got a job as a salesman. And I made a ton of money. Oh, did I ever. I made an awful lot of money, became very, very successful. But I also learned how to drink. And I developed a dependence on alcohol that was to destroy me almost completely. Because, you see, I thought you, I didn't realize it was a dependence. I just thought you had to be hard-driving, hard-working, hard-drinking individual out there to make it. And I qualified on every one of those counts. I wasn't out in the working world too long before I realized that why should I be making money for all this, comp this company I was making uh, the money for when I should be making it for myself? 
So I came back to my hometown in Oakville, Ontario, and I established a business. Now I'm going to be the local businessman, and I realized I'm not going to be able to continue to drink in a small community like Oakville was in the same fashion as I had been drinking on the road, which was every night of the week, because if I did that in a small community, I'd create such scandalous situations, it would adversely affect my business. So I began to practice what we here referred to in the program as controlled drinking. Let me assure anyone here this morning that if you're trying it, you're wasting a hell of a lot of good drinking time. It doesn't work. I have tried every known method to man. Psychiatry, religion, medicine, social workers, you name them. I tried them. I remember one time I went to see a psychiatrist. I shopped around until I got the most expensive ones. After a great deal of his time and my money, he made a very, very profound statement. He said, you drink too much. <laughs> I knew that before I went to see him. I was five years in AA and I walked into the North Toronto group one night and who's sitting in the back row? Yeah, the psychiatrist. <laughs> and I walked over to him and I said, you drink too much. <laughs> and he's never spoken to me since. <laughs> The most prominent method I employed was the pledge system. Now, the pledge system is a wonderful thing. A lot of young folk here today who wouldn't understand what the pledge system is. The pledge system is an old Irish custom for those who had the failing. <laughs> wonderful thing about being an Irish Catholic is you're never a drunk. You just have the failing. And I'd go down and see Father and take the pledge. I took so many pledges that Father ran out of them. They never lasted any longer than five minutes. As long as it would take me to walk from his house to the nearest hotel. And there I'd go to have the last drink I was going to have before I quit for the rest of my life. And it wasn't until I came to this program and you people told me it's not the second, the twelfth, the twenty-second, or the thirty-second drink. No, no. It's the first drink that does the damage. And I made a great discovery, a tremendous discovery. I discovered that it is humanly, absolutely humanly impossible to take the second one without having taken the first one first, you see. This would be the first of another series we've gone for God knows how long. The luck of the Irish has always been with me. I've had many blessings which I've done nothing to deserve. And it's a well-known fact in the Irish way of life that there's a problem in the home or the parish. You take it to the pastor. God, do I ever know that today? <laughs> you know. And uh, my mother, God rest her soul, she had more faith in her little finger than I'll ever have in a lifetime. And I remember one time that I got into some pretty heavy stuff and she got on my case, and I knew how to get her off my back. I'll go down and see Father, because Father fixed everything. Well, I hope I'll never forget on that occasion she got on my case. I said, I'll go down and see Father. About six months before this, we'd gotten a new pastor. He was older than the previous one. I rationalized he'd be wiser in the ways of the world, and I hope I'll never forget going down to see him. I sat in his study with him for two hours talking about my drinking, and my final remarks were to him. I said, Father, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. God, Pete, he said, I don't think you are either. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, we'll sit down, we'll have a drink, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> My poor mother could never figure out why every time I went to the rectory, I came home loaded, you see. And she'd say to me, where have you been? I said, down to see Father. She said, you couldn't have been. Look at the shape you're in. I said, you should see him, you know. Well, now I'm the local businessman, and I look around the community, and, and sure enough, there's the druggisties in the Lions Club, and the hardware merchants in the Rotary Club, and somebody else in another outfit. And I says to myself, I need a higher profile. <laughs> now, when you're a drunk, you don't need any higher profile. And so I began to join organizations. Now, there's nothing the matter with joining organizations as a business person, but I didn't do it quite in the conventional manner. I joined some 37 organizations. 
I joined everything but the Masonic Lodge and the Orange Order. It was the only two I couldn't qualify for. If there was a dog fight on the county, a pink tea, a song circle, ladies aid, a quilting party, didn't matter a damn what it was, I'd be there. The last year of my drinking, they quit inviting me for fear I'd show up. You know, I was like a wheeler and dealer, like an accident looking for a place to happen. Well, along about this time, I did something that I know that God will never, ever forgive me for. I went into politics. <laughs> now, it's not difficult to become a politician. That's obvious after your last election. And <laughs> and I guess if you're an alcoholic, you might even get there faster. I don't know. I began my career in the municipal level. And uh, I won't bore you with all the details of how I got into that because I should still be in penitentiary for that one. But I, um, I would recall a couple of committees that I served on. I was always after the most prestigious committees and the ones that paid the most and the ones that would, where I knew there would be a lot of free booze. And I sat on two committees that I want to refer to. One was a particularly dangerous assignment, not for me, but for the citizens of my community. They made me chairman of the police commission. <laughs> you know, there's absolutely nothing wilder than a practicing alcoholic running the police department, I want you. You park your car in the middle of the street or on the sidewalk or wherever you fall out of it, and the police would come along and say, for God's sakes, go home. And I'd say, do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah, they were hoping I'd drop dead right there. The second committee was I was chairman of public works. The chairman of public works should never do any more than cut two ribbons, make two short speeches, and, 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 and even that'll get you into trouble. But I ran that department differently. I had the road in front of St. Andrew's Catholic Church paved. I had the trees pruned. I had the lights fixed. I had the snow removed. I had men down there all the time. The poor little Anglican minister over in the corner never got a damn thing done, you see. I hated him, you know. And I hated anybody else who got in my road, and God help them if they did. Along about this time, I decided to take my life a step further, and I went into party politics. Now, very fortunately for you, you'll be spared any account of that, because I don't remember anything about it myself. I was drunk during the entire campaign and made a jackass of myself on every platform in the county. I would recall one incident to illustrate the talk when we hear the program about the morning drink. I get a great kick out of these people who put the emphasis on, on the morning drink. Now, who the hell ever heard tell of an alcoholic looking at his watch to find out what time it was he was drinking? He might be interested in what year it is, but not what time it is, you see. I was in the north end of the riding on a Friday night, and we had a big rally, and it was very successful, and, and we had a big party afterwards, and we all got drunk, and one of my campaign workers drove me home to my mother's home where I was living in Oakville during the night sometime. Now, on Saturday morning, I had on my desk an invitation to attend as a platform guest the dedication service of our Dominion Public Building, which was under construction at that time. My mother tactfully suggested I shouldn't go there because of the condition I was in. I was still drunk from the night before. And I told her she didn't know what she was talking about. I got very indignant with her. And I presented myself there in the presence of many of our citizens and a lot of brass from the Public Works Department in Ottawa. I arrived at the platform and I presented my credentials and the aide said, yes, Mr. Waters, we have a seat for you. And he escorted me onto the platform right down to the end of the platform, right next to my political opponent. The ceremonies got underway. It was a grand and beautiful June morning, and the ceremonies got underway, and the mayor was addressing the crowd, and I fell off the platform, you see. And they ran over and said, what happened? I said, he shoved me off. I said, that's what happened there. <laughs> the truth of the matter was, of course, that I drank the best part of a bottle of scotch before I went there that morning, and by that time I saw two platforms and got the wrong one. I guess that's the only way you can explain it. I want to hearken back to my opening remarks. Here was a young man with very high ideals. Very, a lot of good things going for me, good family, a lot of good things. And now I'm lying in the gutter, in the gutter. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you don't think that alcohol can do that to you because you have some sort of a social status or because you have a bank account or because you're you're well-known or anything else, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself because it'll take you right to the cleaners. It has no respect for social status, color, creed, or anything else. Yeah, I lost my business. I lost my right to hold public office. I lost my right to drive an automobile. I lost my right to live at home. And then I did what I've since been told that all alcoholics have to do. I went to Toronto. (laughs) If you've ever been in Toronto, you will agree with that. And uh, I lived on Skid Row for a period of time. And during this time, things were very bad, very bad. And of necessity, I had to get a little job. And I got a job sweeping floors for a wholesale hardware company in downtown Toronto at $17.50 a week. And I was so excited about this job that I called my mother, God rest her soul, and asked her if if I could come home. And she said, as long as you behave yourself, you can come home. And that night, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I sat in the living room with my mother, and I told her of my great plans, that this was going to be different, this was going to be a whole new beginning, and so on. And she had heard that so many times. And uh, she said to me, Peter, she said, why don't you get a ride back and forth from Oakville to Toronto? It's a distance of about 20 miles with one of our commuters. And she said, hang on to that little job and things will get better. Well, I had no alternative, so I took her advice and I shopped around and I came across a chap whose family name I knew, but I didn't know him. He had had a bad reputation in our community. He was a fellow who had been all tangled up with the police and in trouble all the time. And somewhere along the way, he joined a mysterious outfit called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I could have cared less if he joined the Ku Klux Klan. All I wanted from that bird was a ride back and forth from Oakville to Toronto. Now, this is a man that I love and admire and respect. He is not only my sponsor, but he brought me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's known to some of you in the room here this morning. His name is Don Carlton of the White Oaks Group in Oakville. And the ironical part of it is, he's a Protestant Englishman, and how the hell he got in the act, I don't know. But I can recall driving back and forth from Oakville to Toronto with Don. He picked me up at my home in Oakville in the morning, dropped me off at a designated place downtown Toronto, and the return at night. And things were going along well. And you know, you know perfectly well that these boys in AA have a nasty, nasty habit of dropping hints if they think you're a candidate. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I was getting a lot of hints. And one night I didn't show up for my ride. The only reason I didn't show up for my ride was it was payday. And I had $17.50. And I was picked up later that night sitting outside of a prominent eating place in downtown Toronto with all their silverware in my pockets. And I spent the night in jail. And I got out the following morning through the benevolence of the Salvation Army. And oh my God, I was sick. Now I met Don that night at the designated spot. And there were just the two of us in the car. And that was the night in retrospect that I realized that we suffer from a double viral disease. The second half of this disease is a thing called pride. And I had a lion's share of it from the very, very beginning. Because that night I can remember it as if it were last night. Coming out of Toronto, I wait till we get about five miles out of the city. And I turned to this wonderful man and I said to him, I understand you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, yes, I am. And what do you think I said to him? I said, you know, I'm very social service minded. I'd like to go to one of those things sometime. Maybe I could help somebody, you know. I want to vomit every time I think of that. And he said, yeah, there's a meeting tonight. I said, I don't want it that fast, you know. I hope I will never forget to be grateful for the fact that you took me to my first meeting that night in the North Toronto group. And I came through the doors of this fellowship with one of the most closed minds that ever came into it. 
Uh, and uh, things were going along, and here I am, and everyone in this hall today knows full well that anyone who has experienced initial sobriety knows full well that words are totally, totally inadequate to describe the feeling that one gets when they have been uh, three days sober, four days sober. My God, a week sober. Miracles abound. And I'm going back and forth to Toronto and Oakville with this wonderful man. And I got offered another job. And I really needed a job in the worst way. And this was to give me big money. And I, I was to do, a, I was to become, people have asked me what it was. And I'll tell you very quickly, I was to become a professional fundraiser for the Catholic Church. Now, I damn near put them out of business. And that's almost impossible with the Catholic Church. I was sent out to Western Canada namely Edmonton to run a financial campaign to raise five and a half million dollars to finish the cathedral. And I flew out to Edmonton and I got off the plane in Edmonton and my nerves were bad. Now all alcoholics have bad nerves. Most of the ones I've ever met have a hell of a nerve as far as I'm concerned. And besides, all that junk they told me back in Oakville about the first drink, go to meet, yeah, 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 yeah. I knew all about that. That was for the uninitiated. I was much smarter than that. I didn't need that, see? And so I found out where all the bars were the first night. In case I missed any, I went back the second night, and the third night, and the fourth night, and the fifth night. And how in the name of God I got any work done, I don't know. But I can recall very vividly laying in a third-rate hotel room in downtown Edmonton, coming out of a four- or five-day drunken stupor, and saying to myself, Waters, why can't you stay sober? I couldn't stay sober because I couldn't be honest. Honesty is a basic requirement to our recovery. Because I would come back... I would come back to Oakville, and I'd get together. There was a wonderful sponsor of mine, and he'd say, How are you doing? I'd say, Just great. Getting lots of meetings, lots of meetings. Hadn't been to one since I'd left. And he said, you remember Charlie was around the program the last time you were here? I said, oh, I remember Charlie very well. He said, he's having a hell of a time making it. And I'd have the gall, the gall to stand in front of this wonderful man and say to him, isn't it too bad he can't latch on to this thing the way I am? You know, oh, God. Well, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Because I came back from such a trip and I was met in Oakville by two high-powered, high-profile Toronto financiers. And they offered me an incredible job. A once-in-a-lifetime job. I was to become the general manager of a very large retail operation in the town of Oakville. <laughs> the local boy makes good. I had to go out and buy a new suit. All the buttons popped off the one I had on. I became ensconced in the big paneled office of the leather chair, the oak desk. I had 180 employees, and I'm just a wheeling and a dealing. And after about seven days, I looked across my desk, and there sat my sponsor. Now, I don't know whether he'd been there all along or not, but there he was, you see. And he looked at me and he said, you're going to get drunk. I looked at him as if he had seven heads. What are you talking about? I said, I'll be back to AA when I have time. <gasps> That's a dangerous statement. It wasn't many days thereafter that I drove down the Kerr Street in Oakville to the liquor store and picked up the bottle, proceeded into the West End of Toronto, stopped at a pay booth and called a young lady whom I'd taken out on a few previous occasions. And the only reason I called her was I knew she drank. And I said, how about having dinner? She thought that was a marvelous idea. I said, how about a couple of cocktails before dinner? She thought it was an even better idea. So I picked her up. We went right over to Young Street where they sell lots of it. By midnight, she didn't know her name and I didn't know mine. And we hadn't eaten either, you know. And about one o'clock in the morning, I'm taking her home to the east end of Toronto. And I took my eyes off the road for just a moment. And the next thing I knew, I was all tangled up in one of those friggin' streetcars they got run around down there, you see. Blood and guts, it was a terrible accident. 
And the only recollection I have of the accident is the arresting officer, who has since become a good friend of mine, a good friend of this fellowship. He had one of the broadest English accents I've ever listened to in my life, and I became very, very belligerent. And I woke up the following morning in what we call the Dawn Jail, the big city jail. Now, if you haven't been to the Dawn Jail, if you keep on drinking, you'll get there. Here was the man of influence in the bottom end of Don Jail. Let me assure you, you don't influence anybody down there. You can rattle the door all day long. Some of you have been there, I can tell by the way you're smiling. And um, I had, I was sick. Oh my God, I was sick. Now, I had been sick before, but this was the mother of them all. I had a hangover you could take out and have a look at. Did you ever have one of those? And I did something I hadn't done for a long, long time. I knelt down in that cell, and I asked the God of my understanding, in the only way I knew how, if he would relieve me of the obsession to drink, in order that I might be of some use to humanity and some use to myself. This morning, in all sincerity and all gratitude, but most wonderful of all, in all honesty, I can stand here and tell you that that was on January 31st, 1961, and I have not had a drink of alcohol in any form since that time. On the occasion of my 30th anniversary in AA, we had a party and about 600 people showed up and an old-timer came over to me that night and he said, Waters, he said, you're so dry, you're a fire hazard. <laughs> it was a long journey back. It was a long journey back. i make a little move this way, a little move that way, get a better job. And I knew that if I was going to be my own person, I'd have to go back into business again. And so I worked very hard. In the first year I was back in Alcoholics Anonymous, I went to 345 meetings. The only reason I didn't go to the other 20, I was hospitalized. What I failed to use to say is that my good friends, I was surrounded. You see, we had no detox centers, no halfway houses, no treatment centers in our part of the world at that time. And I was surrounded by giants. We walk on the backs of giants, my friends. And I was surrounded by giants. And these people went to every one of those meetings with me. And, and I'm so very grateful today. We talk about, I get a little, oh, more than a little upset when I hear people saying, I don't need a sponsor. My friends, you're skating on thin ice if you think you can get by without a sponsor. I'm always reminded of the story of the two old timers down at the corner at the coffee shop, Charlie and Bill. Charlie says to Bill one morning, he said, I'm not going to call in any more of those fresh drunks. I'm sick and tired of it, he said, and they're always puking on me. And he said, uh, Charlie said to Bill, well, he said, Bill, yeah, I've been around the same length of time as you have, and I'm going to keep on calling on them because I'd rather be the pukey than the pukor, you see. <laughs> and so we went to meetings. Now, in those days, a little different than it is today. You did what you were told. Set up the chairs, sweep the floor. It was the days before styrofoam cups, you washed the ditches. And you did all the things you were told to do. And my sponsor told me then and continues to tell me to this day that the only excuse he will accept for missing my group meeting is a death in the family and it must be my own, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so we continued to go to meetings. And little did I know, you know, I began to uh, put a few things together and I got a little business going and uh, things were turning up roses for me. And uh, along about this time, I thought, you know, it doesn't get any better. Well, it does. It does, my friends. Because along about this time, I had the great privilege of meeting Bill. And I was privileged to spend the next seven to eight years with him, traveled with him, talked to him, questioned him, listened to him, 
and it was like sitting at the master's knee. And this morning, I would be indeed very remiss if I didn't share with you some of the insights that it was my privilege to gain from Bill Wilson and many others, the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask your indulgence for a few minutes, and I'll try to be as quick as I can. But I don't get this many people together, even in St. Teresa's Church in Kitchener, too often, you know. And uh, uh, just be careful, I'll take up a collection if you're not careful. <laughs> and then announce a bingo. <laughs> in order to do it, I'm going to ask you to conjure in your mind the idea of a journey. Because any journey, no matter what its duration or its destination may be of necessity, always begins with the first step. And that's exactly where we'll begin our journey today. Now, we have some very profound people in the program who tell you that the first step of the program is the most important step of the program. And I have no idea whether that's true or not, and I have no intentions of arguing about it. But there's one thing I'm absolutely certain of about the first step. I couldn't be more sure about the, about the first step. It's in the right place. <laughs> You see, they didn't put it anywhere else. Wilson knew there was going to be a cook like me or several like me coming down the pike someday. And he said, let's put numbers on it. He'll screw it up. And he put number one beside that. And it says, we admit we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. Over the years, there was one word in the first step that eluded me for a long, long time. It was a word was powerlessness. Powerless. I couldn't understand. I'd get a handle on it, and I would go, and then it would peter out, and I'd be left high and dry again. And a few years ago, after a lot of praying and reading and reflection, I came up with a definition of powerlessness, and I want to share it with you this morning. I dare say that everyone who's an alcoholic in this hall this morning has at some time in their past considered that it was too much and we would end it all. We would end it all. I want you to go back to that time in your, in your drinking and you find a 20-story building. You get on the roof. You're going to jump, of course. You run and you jump. You're 20 feet out from the building. You haven't hit the sidewalk. You can't get back on the roof. You have both feet firmly planted in midair. What do you suppose you should do? I don't know about you, but I would go with lightning speed to the second step. <laughs> that's the only thing that's going to save you. How many times has he reached out and ever so gently let you down? Otherwise, you would splatter all over the bloody sidewalk. Right? Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It didn't say he would, <laughs> you know. It says he could. <laughs> He's still working on some of you. <laughs> but there's an interesting little twist in step two that we need to pay attention to. This power that they talk about now, you know, this is not God, not at all, not at all. Please believe that when I tell you that. When we say a power greater than yourself, the power, of course, comes from God. Eh? 
Now, if you want a verification for that, let me just jump ahead here. Saw 11, saw through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. It's the same power as in step two. Same power. So God gives you the power. No conditions attached. You've got to be very careful what you do with the power. There was a fellow by the name of David Korash. Took 88 people into a compound in Texas and shot them. He prayed to the same God that you and I pray to. A fellow by the name of Jimmy Jones took a thousand people to Guyana, had a Kool-Aid party and killed them all. Prayed to the same God as you and I pray to. What happened? Got the power and destroyed. Used it for destruction. What have you done with the power that God has given you? Have you been responsible for breaking up a home? Have you been responsible for somebody else getting drunk? Have you been responsible for injuring people? Let me tell you, my friends, this is, not a, this is not a picnic. This is not a Sunday school picnic. This is very serious business. When you ask God to give you power. You better be careful what you do with that power. Because it can destroy. And by the same token, it can redeem. It can redeem. And then it says, you know, in the third step, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. <gasps> the weeping and wailing that's done in this step is incredible, my friends. You should listen to them. Look at what you've done to me. You brought me to this wonderful outfit. And now you want me to do the impossible. You want me to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever meet an alcoholic who was born to make a decision? I made so many decisions, I put myself out of business three times before I got here. And then in step four, it says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and everybody gets uptight. Oh my God, he's going to talk about his sex life. <laughs> Some cases would be rather interesting, wouldn't they? <laughs> Most of them would be very short. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say anything there at all about your sex life. God is not interested in your sex life. God doesn't give a hoot who you're sleeping with. Not at all. Now, mind you, you should be careful who you're sleeping with. You may take something home you hadn't planned on. <laughs> and they say, oh, Father, you shouldn't talk that way. You're damn right you talk that way. See, I, when I was going to school, I was taught by the nuns. The most, some of the most wonderful women in the whole world, and some of them are as flaky as hell, you know. <laughs> Remember what old sister used to say, Now if you have a bad thought, close your eyes and it'll go away. Well, I used to close my eyes and it got better, you know. <laughs> See? The word moral here doesn't mean who you're sleeping with or anything at all. The word moral means the total person. The physical, mental, spiritual person. That's what that means. Now don't you think Wilson was telling us something when he did that? Sure he was. You have to take the steps physically, mentally, and spiritually. And if you do anything less than that, you're shortchanging yourself. But the key word in step four was the word inventory. Now, if I was asked to take an inventory of this room, I would lock the doors and then take stock of what is in the room, not what used to be in it. 
or what's going to be in it. What's in it now? This is a now program. I beg of you not to, or it may be necessary to look to the past to see what we did there that made us become what we are now. But for the love of God, don't wallow around in that stuff that made you drunk before and it'll make you drunk again. So, an inventory. Now, you have to be careful. I get a lot of... <laughs> Five, it says, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Oh, God. Not our inventory. Not our inventory. The exact nature of our wrongs. Do you know what the exact nature of your wrongs are? I don't know about yours, but I'm going to tell you about some of mine. I'm going to tell you about some of mine. Now, there is no question in my mind that I am, without a doubt, the world's greatest controller. Oh, I can control everything. And I did. Long after I was sober. Don't have to be drunk to do that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I ran everything. You see, I knew exactly what God should do and who he should do it to. <laughs> then I had another exact nature of my wrongs. Fear of abandonment. I would fall in love with people that weren't available to me. Have you ever done that? <laughs> oh, yeah, some of you have, I'm sure, eh? Yeah, yeah. And then I had an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. Oh, just leave it. I'll look after it. I take care of it. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll look after it. Nothing ever gets done. Now, you thought it was supposed to be all moral things. No, no. We're not talking about the moral inventory here. We're talking about the exact nature of our wrongs, which are very different. Eh? And then we had, you know, repressed anger. Oh, Lord, I was so angry. I, I hated people I didn't even know. <laughs> you know? That SOB that cut me off in traffic. Why, you know, I called him everything but a mother's son. Yeah. And then I had and have repressed sexuality. Oh, Father, don't talk about that. You're damn right you talk about that. My book says that you have to clean up the act. And if you don't do that, you will pay one enormous price for your sobriety. You will pay dearly, my friends, if you don't clean up the act. Because that's what the book says right there. It says, clear away the wreckage of your past. That's what it says. And if you don't clean that up and you go on, then you are a Pharisee. You're Pharisaic. Yes. Oh, yes. Don't ever forget it. Because you can't be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You can't be this and that. We, we have a path to follow. And that path tells us, our book tells us, rarely have we seen a person follow, fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I ask people, what do you think the path is? Oh, they say the 12 steps. There's absolutely no similarity between the word step and the word path in the dictionary. They have two separate distinct definitions. Two separate definitions. And then they say the steps. Now, did you ever see a set of steps that didn't take you somewhere? <laughs> We've got lots of people in the program running up and down steps all the time. They're going anywhere, you see. Yeah, running up and down the steps all the time, you know. And, and they've been around the program 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I, I say to them, how are you doing? He said, I'm recovering. I said, when the hell are you going to get well? 
That's the object of the exercise. I feel good. I like me. I think I'm a hell of a fine fellow. Now, if you can't handle that, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> I learned that in Al-Anon. <laughs> Al-Anon are the greatest people in the whole world. Oh, God, I love you so much. You're just the greatest. You teach us so many things we need to know, and you're good at it. Thank God for you. And then... Just before I leave the fourth and the fifth step, I remember in the early days of my sobriety, I used to go to a White Oaks group in Oakville, and there was a little fella came there by the name of No God Joe. He's dead now, God rest him, and he didn't believe in God. One night I go there, and we're having a discussion, four and five, and I thought, there's Joe. How lucky can you get? I'm going to find out how you do four and five without a relationship with a higher power. So it comes Joe's turn, and I'm listening very carefully. Joe says, I understand those two steps perfectly. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to take the person I hate the most, Tell him everything I know, and then shoot him. <laughs> Which really wasn't a bad idea at all, you know. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I thought, by God, I got a lot to learn. I better go back next week and see what Joe would do with six and seven. So I go back next week. How lucky can you get Joe's there? Joe, it comes Joe's turn. He said, I understand those two steps perfectly. A defect of character is when you look at a good-looking girl, and a shortcoming is when you catch her. <laughs> I'm going to separate them for making purposes of making a few comments on each one. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I get people who come and says, and in comes Charlie. Now, Charlie, uh, uh, I say, hi, Charlie. And Char I could just see Charlie's mad. He said, I'm mad. I said, what are you mad at, Charlie? He said, I'm mad at God. Well, what did God do to you? God didn't take away my defects of character. Well, see, Charlie doesn't understand the steps. I'm here this morning to tell you that God is not likely to take away all your defects of character. Not at all. Not at all. And I'll tell you why. He's going to leave some of them so you may be able to take a disadvantage and turn it into an advantage in your life. And I'm going to tell you about two of them because of the bane of my life to this very day. I lecture at the University of Waterloo, and uh, one day I'm out in the East End of Kitchener, poking around in a shopping mall, and I look at my watch, I've got ten minutes to get to the university, and, and, and it's a long ways, and horrendous traffic, and, and I, uh, I, for my lecture. So I jumped in my car, and I headed for the university, and a young buck got in his car, and got in front of me. Now he knew I was in a hurry. <laughs> And he wouldn't let me get by no matter what I did. And, and my patience was wearing thin. As a matter of fact, it was totally gone. And I had the collar on. And I had to keep reminding myself, now Waters, for God's sakes, whatever you do, don't disgrace the church. And finally we came to an intersection and he pulled over. And I pulled up alongside of him as close as I could and I was just in a rage. And I rolled my window down and I motioned to him to do the same and he did. And with a sneer on his face, he's looking out the window. And I said to him, will you do me a favor? He said, sure. I said, send your mother and father over and I'll marry them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now that's what I call patience. <laughs> 
Right after my ordination to the priesthood, I was uh, assigned to a parish in Hamilton on the mountain. And uh, Sunday is a horrendous day in the life of a priest. The only thing good about it is payday, you know. And uh, I, my sisters had arranged a family gathering in Oakville, and I was to be there in the afternoon, and I knew I'd better get there and get the dickens from them. So I finished up my chores, and I had a little Volkswagen car, and I came down the mountainside and got onto one of the main streets in Hamilton, heading for the expressway, just going hell-bent for the expressway. I no sooner pulled on the expressway than I realized I'd cut a fellow off. Now, I didn't mean to do that, but there was absolutely no doubt in the world that I was guilty of it. And you can't stop in the middle of the expressway and say you're sorry. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and the look of horror in this man's face was something to behold. Totally distorted. He had his hands on the steering wheel. His knuckles were white, and he was coming directly at me. But as he pulled up his long side of me as close as he could, he went like that, you see. And as soon as he saw my collar, his hand went right down like that, you see. And I gave him a blessing and sent him on his way. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Oh, we play games with God on this one. Oh, do we ever? Oh, yes, God, you can take that. Oh, God, don't take that. I need it for Saturday night, you know. If you're ready to do it, then do it properly. If you're not, do not play games with God. It's bad manners. <laughs> He's God. <laughs> Don't play games with him. Eight, made a list of all persons with harm, became willing to make amends to them all. Oh, what a beautiful step has been my experience over the years. Though, unfortunately, that what we do is we confuse amends with obligations. Oh, yeah, somebody will say, well, I bought the groceries last week. You're supposed to buy the groceries, for God's sake. Somebody said, well, I bought the kids' shoes. You're supposed to buy the kids' shoes. Those are not amends. Those are obligations. When some of you fellas here this morning stood in front of a fellow like me and said, I take her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part in front of a whole church full of people, that's a very binding legal document. They call it a marriage license. And it costs some of you a hell of a lot of money to get out of it, I want you to know. So there's an awful lot of difference between an amend and an obligation. Fulfill your obligations. Bill has told us what an amend is. An amend is to repair the damage. God can mend a broken heart, but only if we give him all the pieces. Nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I want to take a moment on step nine. We are singularly blessed in this world because when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous, as our speaker mentioned last night, one of the greatest gifts that we receive instantly is the gift of laughter. It's a marvelous thing because it's God's medicine, healing medicine of the soul. And we have a great opportunity to laugh and share. And it's been my good fortune over the years to attend a lot of conferences and speak at conferences. And sometimes I get invited back to the, the third and fourth and fifth time to some of these places. And a few years ago, I was invited back to the deep south, uh, way down south of Atlanta. And uh, there's a black lady down there. Her name is Annabelle. Annabelle is the star of the south. And she's a big black lady. And I just love her very much. Annabelle can't read or write. She's been sober over 40 years. And Annabelle gets so excited about going to the conference, she goes a day ahead of time. And she ensconces herself in the local hotel, and the day of the conference comes, and all the young girls come flocking in. Why, Annabelle, you here again? Annabelle, you've been coming here since the year one. 
Annabelle, why do you keep coming to all those meetings? And Annabelle, wait till they all get finished. She says, well, honey, China, it's the hugging and the kissing and the rubbing together that I like. <laughs> and Annabelle speaks on Saturday afternoon. And if you want to get a seat, you better get there early. There'll be 6,000 people there. And Annabelle tells her story. It's quite a story. Horrendous story. And then at the end of her talk, she says, Now I'm going to give you the message. And she waits. And there's like a drape coming down. You can almost hear it touch the floor. And Annabelle then leans into the microphone. Now I'm going to give you the message. If you want to quit drinking, you've got to quit drinking. <laughs> She just cut through all the crap and told us exactly what we have to do. Hey, she can't read or write. She made it very, very simple. You want to quit drinking? You got to quit drinking. And that's all there is to it. And she sits down, and the place erupts into a standing ovation, and, and deservedly so. Now, there's a time for that, and there's also a time to be serious. Dr. Bob, in his writings, left us a great legacy of writings. In one of his writings, he told us to beware of a certain part of our anatomy that could lead us into a great deal of difficulty. It is called the tongue. My friends, I want you to know, over the years that I've been in this fellowship, that the gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely nothing short of scandalous. I wonder how many people are sitting in a lonely room this morning who would dearly love to be here, but the last time they came, somebody yap, 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 yap. Oh, I know what I'm talking about. Through no desire of my own, I've had a very high profile in Alcoholics Anonymous for more than 25 years. And I do a lot of traveling, and I sit at head tables, and they love to take shots at you. Oh, do they ever! And if it wasn't for some of the old-timers on whose shoulders I could cry, I might have got drunk. I'm going to tell you about one. He took it upon himself to write my bishop. Dear bishop, do you know that you have a priest in your diocese by the name of Peter Waters? He's an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he speaks a lot at AA. And he is given to outrageous profanity. He says such terrible things as, God damn it. And the bishop wrote him back and said, I'm glad he's cleaned it up. <laughs> My friends, if you can't be caring and loving and understanding and compassionate and, and, and be careful, then keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you see, there's a piece of scripture that covers it very well. It said, better that person had a millstone or tied around their neck and they be cast into the depths of the sea. My dear friends, if this fellowship is ever destroyed, it'll be destroyed from within. The enemy is within, not out there. We have a lot of friends out there. But today we have the enemy within. And those who gossip are worse than, than an enemy. It reminds me of the old story, an old Irish story about the old lady who went to confession. She confessed that she'd gossiped. And the priest said, all right, dear, you go home and you take a feather pillow. You cut the end off it and throw the feathers out and bring me back the pillowcase next Saturday. She thought it was an odd bit of penance, but she'd do it. And she came back the next Saturday with the empty pillowcase. She said, what do I do now? Oh, he said, it's very simple. You go out and you pick up all the feathers and put them back in the pillowcase. 
My God, she said, that's impossible. She said, we had a windstorm on Wednesday night and God only knows where they are. And he said, and that's the same thing with your gossip. God only knows where it is. God only knows who it's hurting today. Then continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Very simple step, very easy step, but a very profound one. I do it every day. I kneel beside my bed and I tell God that I'm sorry for the sins of commission in my life. And then I also tell him I'm sorry for the sins of omission. The things I didn't do today that I might have done. The little bit of help, the smile, the kind word, the dollar that I might have given somebody for a cup of coffee. Eh? You see, my friends, it's a very profound thing, but you'll only live this day once. Just once. And all the opportunities that come to you today will never come again. Oh, you may have a thousand of them tomorrow, but they won't be the ones you had today. That's very, very important we remember that. We live one day at a time. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood in praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Oh, what a magnificent step. It's a marvelous step, so beautifully put together, but unfortunately it often gets misstated. A lot of people think that it says, we sought through prayer and medication. <laughs> it's prayer and meditation. We say in our program, prayers are talking to God and meditation is our listening to God. Oh, that's a beautiful description, but unfortunately it's flawed. Why do I say that? Well, here, this is why I say it. You see, we pray and we pray and we pray and we storm the gates of heaven with our prayers and God hasn't got a chance to get a word in edgewise. It would never ever surprise me, my friends, if one day God didn't look over the wall of heaven and look down on us and say, Shut up! I want to tell you something. God speaks to me all the time through his creation, through people, places, and things. I want to tell you how God speaks to me. Listen carefully. I'm so old now, I have a great niece. She's three and a half. Her name is Phoebe Ann. And without a doubt, she's the greatest of God's creations. And she thinks her uncle is the greatest guy in the whole world, and I agree with her, <laughs> you know. And her mother comes to do some work for me at the rectory, and I insist that she bring Phoebe Ann. And the first thing that Phoebe Ann says to me when she comes into the house, let's go for a walk. And we walk around the block. And it takes us one hour. I'll tell you why. We walk along a little ways, and Phoebe Ann reaches down and picks up a dandelion. Have you ever looked at a dandelion? They're absolutely beautiful especially when Phoebe Ann tells you about them. We walk along a little further, and there's a whole bunch of colored stones over there that I've been walking by for five years and never even saw. And we have to stop, and Phoebe Ann tells me all about the stones, the colors, sizes. It's amazing. Then we walk along a bit further, and lo and behold, there's an anthill. Now, we have to spend a lot of time at the anthill, and I'll tell you why. You have to make sure that the ants that are going down to bring up the dirt are the same ants that are coming back up again, you see. Oh, very important. That's why it takes us an hour. When I get home, I sit at my desk, and I realize what the Master said when he said, 
we have to become as little children. When you look at the world through the eyes of a three and a half year old, your priorities go right out the window. Because the only thing that matters is what he told us, love one another. That's the commandment. He didn't say it was an option. He didn't say it was a suggestion. He said it is a commandment. A commandment. Oh, it's easy for us to love the lovable. But you and I have a tremendous privilege. We are called upon to love the unlovable. The unlovable. What a great privilege. Oh, my. He must think we're very good because he has given us a tough job to do. And he must realize, he must be aware of the fact that we can do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us the job. To go out and love the unlovable. For most of us here today, there was a time in our lives when we weren't very lovable. And as we sit here in the midst of the, found, the, the, the birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous, we find out that most of us have become very lovable. Very lovable. God loves us so much. The question that poses itself to me today is not whether I trust God, it's whether God can trust me. That's the question. That's the question we must constantly ask ourselves. Because it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Not the steps, the principles. What are the principles? Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, tolerance, understanding, compassion, Love. Those are the principles. Those are the universal principles that he gave to each and every one of us. My God. After 33 years, I'm more excited about Alcoholics Anonymous than I've ever been before in my life. This is the greatest gift. It's the greatest gift that God has bestowed upon humankind in 2,000 years. And I tell you, my friends, we sit here in the comfortable pew this morning. But let us not forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering. How many people are in the Akron jail this morning that didn't plan on being there when they went out last night? Don't forget them. Don't forget them. I'm going to wind it up. You've been extremely patient and kind, and I get going. My God, it's awful, you know. But I love every minute of it. <laughs> I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'm going to wind up with a little piece of poetry. But before I do, I'm going to give you a challenge, if I may. And it's out of the big book. And I want you to listen carefully now, very carefully, because I put a new twist on this one. Will you listen carefully for me? And here's what it says. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. Not the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You already belong to that. Have you joined the fellowship of the Spirit? That's what we're calling for here. That's what we're calling for right here. Have you joined the fellowship of the Spirit? Because here's what it says. You will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Until when? Until you join the fellowship of the Spirit, because God will bless you and keep you.
was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer scarcely thought it worth his while to waste his time in the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good people, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, now two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow, and wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and torn with sin is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going, he's almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of the soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God bless you. no way to comment on uh, what I have just heard, so I'm going to let you take Father's message home, wherever home happens to be. And. Uh